0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts.
1: Hello, everyone. I am Olga Sugievich, the head of investor relations at Village Global. I am excited to introduce our guest today, Cameron Dawson. Cameron is the chief investment officer at New Edge, a $36 billion wealth management platform for high net worth and ultra high net worth families. Prior to joining New Edge, Cameron was the chief market strategist at Fieldpoint Private Securities and a senior equity analyst at Bank of America. At New Edge, she's responsible for setting asset allocation as well as investment strategy and execution of the strategy for the firm. In today's conversation, we will talk about the evolution of wealth management platforms, advice to general partners on how to think about this type of a capital partner, and Cameron's perspective on what's happening in private markets, given her expertise in macroeconomics and public markets. Cameron, welcome to
0: Village Global Stories. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Let's
1: start with an overview of the wealth management sector. As many of the traditional LPs in the venture capital space are uh, over-target when it comes to their allocation to this asset class, some of the general partners started to look beyond the world of endowments, foundations, and family offices as they think about the next chapter in their growth. So what do you see as the main differences between the institutional channel and wealth management as a capital partner, and what should GPs consider when they look to partner with wealth managers?
0: Sure. Well, I think that's it's such a great place to start because we know from a lot of venture capital firms that they're looking to wealth management to be the next source for growth as they think about the next cycle and where you can get incremental capital from, because to your point, a lot of institutional investors are fully invested in this space. But one of the things about wealth management is that there's this notion that somehow wealth management is less sophisticated than institutional asset management. And that's really not true. And the reason it's not true is because wealth management in many ways is far more complex than institutional asset management. The reason I say that is because where institutions, yes, each one is different. They have different needs, different goals, different purposes, but oftentimes their portfolio Portfolios look a lot more alike. There's a light, they're a lot more homogenous, Where when we look at wealth management, every client is massively different. And there's a big difference between wealth management clients and institutional clients is that wealth management people, it is their money. And institutions, yes, there's ownership and there's fiduciary duty. But people tend to have a lot different reaction when it's their personal money versus the money of an institution that they're representing. What that means is that they can often be more emotional or they can be less disciplined in how they treat that money, whether it's treating the same money that they have uh, uh, and investing it differently for different time periods. Maybe they should be doing that. That's relevant when we talk about how we incorporate venture into portfolios. But it's also things like liquidity needs. One of the things that's really different about institutional versus wealth management is wealth investors typically have unknown liquidity needs at times or surprise liquidity needs. What that can cause is that you have situations where you have the need to be able to raise liquidity from a portfolio and you have to sell what you can. What this leads to is a lot of wealth uh, clients really being concerned about illiquidity in their portfolios, whether that's a rational response or not, meaning that you will have meetings with clients who have tens of millions of dollars of liquidity. They don't need it for their business. And they say, well, I don't want to make any illiquid investments. So what that highlights is the need as venture funds look into this uh, into this market is this idea of there's probably a lot of education that needs to happen. These are investors that have not been able to get access to the venture space over the long run, just because of high minimums and just simple, difficult to access. Um, and that education needs to really focus on the fact that The return streams are different than what they're used to uh, within public markets and even within some of their illiquid investments. So when we think then to kind of answer the last part of your question of how we think of structuring these portfolios, one of the things that we do is a process called capital partitioning. So when we look at a client, we say, this is the amount of money that you need uh, to live your life until the end of your life. And we'll make sure that that's invested with enough uh, safety on the downside so it can meet your liquidity needs and that you're not worried about paying your bills through the end of your life. It grows with the inflation, et cetera. But then you might have this entire pool of capital that you will never need. That pool of capital should and needs to be invested differently. And that's where venture is a very critical part in that asset allocation. Because venture, of course, as everybody knows this listing, is that it is a long-dated asset. It does provide that potential for greater growth over the long run. And so it really comes from an asset allocation uh, uh, discussion about the function that the asset plays. And venture is a key portion of achieving that long-term growth for those assets that you know that you're not going to need to touch in the near term. But again, that takes a lot of discipline for a wealth investor and for a retail investor to really identify, okay, I'm going to put this away and not touch it because it really does require that acceptance of the illiquidity, but also acceptance of the benefit of growth. Yep.
1: And I would imagine there's a lot of different types of players in the wealth management space, right? Everyone from large private banks to some of the more sort of tech enabled tech driven wealth management platforms today. And, you know, venture still remains the capacity constrained asset class, right? So in most of the cases, GP, Probably are able to work only with one or two intermediaries and, um, and perhaps not to the extent of the scale that you know, at least private banks would be used to. So, what would be some of the criteria or some of the things that you would recommend GPs pay attention to when they choose, you know, one or two partners on the wealth management platform side? Kind of like how do you think about you know, the differences between different types of platforms and um, how, how to choose the right one?
0: Yeah, it, it raises a point that we think that allows us as New Edge to really sit in a sweet spot as making an allocation decision because we're big enough in order to make an allocation that matters to most GPs, but we're also small enough that allows us to be nimble and not only invest in the biggest, largest funds that can provide the most liquidity. You know, I think to your point is that the law of large numbers really is a real thing for funds, and maybe it's something we see a little bit more pronounced within private equity where you do have a lot more me- mega funds where as these funds get larger and larger and larger, we think that what happens is that over time, the alpha that they used to be able to get has will decay into beta or is in the process of decaying into beta. And what I mean by that is this idea that where you were able to get super normal returns, kind of an old econ 101 term. In the past, when funds were smaller, more nimble, there was greater opportunity that can decay over time into being something that just looks more kind of market-based, which just means it's equity returns plus some kind of illiquidity. Now, of course, if you're paying high fees as an allocator like we are, we want to make sure that if we're going to pay for alpha, we're going to get alpha, which leads us to when we're identifying investments, we are really looking for those funds that don't hit the law of large numbers. Now, in venture, that is less common, but you still have even the biggest funds still have a great deal of, of return potential and upside opportunity because to your point, it is capacity constrained. I think our biggest concern is actually the democratization of the asset class that would happen too rapidly where you could see too many new entrants, too much money chasing after a limited amount of investments. And then you very quickly realize that out Alpha decay into beta reality, which just means that investors who might be marking down very high returns for the potential of their venture, the realization is lower simply because of that law of large numbers. It's not quite happening yet, but I think it does require discipline, mostly because these are allocations we're making for the next eight, 10, 12 years.
1: And of course, venture is an asset class with very fat distribution tails, right? So um that also makes it very challenging to pick the right um, GPS to partner with and and we'll get more into that um, topic a little bit later. but let's talk about um, you know your role as a CIO. what's important to be a great CIO? I can imagine there are different archetypes of CIOs and there is probably a number of different ways to be successful um, in this role who are your mentors, role models um, you know what's what's important to succeed for someone in your role?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been an absolute whirlwind over the past, I think, call it 16 months or so in this role. Uh, it is a jack of all trades kind of role where in one moment you're flipping from looking at what the PM. My day to day was look at what the PMIs did, sit on an operations call, you know, uh, edit a paper, jump, you know, and do speak with you. Olga. it's all over the place, but it's fantastic because it's a huge learning opportunity. Not just getting to understand and commentary about what's going on in the world and markets on the outside, but understanding how our business works on the inside. I think that having a wide skill set and continuously thinking about having to amass an even wider skill set is absolutely critical, um, you know, in this kind of role because the world changes so rapidly and, and being a quick learner um, likely is, is one of the key characteristics uh, in, in finding success in something like this, because there will always be something new um, to, to get ramped up on. You know, as far as mentors, you know, I had the great benefit of working for an abs- Absolutely extraordinary CIO in Chris Heisey at Bank of America, private bank, uh, for many years. And he epitomized um, the steady hand through the downturn of the great financial crisis, the optimism that's needed when people are scared to make sure that they continue to remain on their plan and stay invested, even when times are uncertain. Um, but also the class of how he how he communicated about the world. And and I remember when I was interviewing for my current position, I said, if I could be one percent or one tenth of the CIO that that he was, um, I would be, you know, a, or is currently still today a, a great success. So. It's always, um, I I look back at my career and see all these people that I've gotten to learn from, but he's been such an incredible role model all throughout it. uh, And, you know, really wonderful to have that North Star, you know, even at such an early point in my career. So this is a perfect segue
1: into my next question about your background as an investor. And you know if we look back at the last 10-20 years where illiquidity premium were extremely attractively priced and many programs started to allocate more and more to privates, um you know you have different types of CIOs some of whom may have come from the private space. You have a lot of experience in managing liquid asset classes and equity right which some may argue is potentially the most difficult market to outperform. Um, so tell us more about your background. You know, How does it influence how you view the world today? Um, and what are some of perhaps the ways that you approach asset allocation differently from maybe some of your peers at other firms?
0: You know, it's so funny. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who works in private markets and was like, you you're, you you have to work too hard you know, all this mark to market on a daily basis he goes i talk to i mark to market once a quarter i talk to my investors once a quarter uh and it's a completely different world than you know this mark to market tick by tick of the minute where things can change so very rapidly and to your point, Olga, I do come from the public markets uh background. So I was an equity analyst on the industrial side of things. And that did lead, you know, some to some interesting uh, experiences over the time of covering those stocks. The first one is that my markets were effectively in a bear market, the companies I covered on a relative performance to the broader equity market for a good six, seven years. Uh, they've only just started to get better. And I, I pinch myself to say just when I could have been popular as an industrials analyst, <laughs> uh, I'm doing something else. But what that led to is a great deal of discipline and understanding about how cycles work. And it's the perfect proving ground to understand how macro cycles filter in through through equity markets. So a simple dynamic about things like valuations and understanding in real time how valuations expand. End early at the bottom of the cycle, even while companies are cutting guidance, they're telling you that the world is ending, they're telling you that they're never gonna have earnings ever again, and yet the stocks are soaring. And that's the real benefit of the forward-looking nature of the equity market. And getting to experience that in real time and having multiple downturns, understanding how to protect capital in the downturn by focusing on those names leads really well into um, you know kind of having that ability from a CIO perspective about how can we manage capital for the long run. One of the key aspects is making sure that we kind of cut off that left tail within the downturns, keep people invested even when times are scary, and then have as we have as much participation as we can in the upcycle. Um, but again, that risk management that I learned, you know, in and going through the industrial side of things. One of the things I've learned over the last three years moving away from industrials is this ability to dream the dream, and that's what you don't get in covering cyclical industries. If I'd been a tech analyst, uh, probably a different scenario where you know tech stocks, um, you know, have this incredible capability of being able to continuously outperform to the upside on growth, and that you know, seeing that in real time, seeing that in real time with the venture investments that we do have, how these companies have navigated different cycles. Um, that's been eye-opening. You know, I, I used to always say this is why we can't have nice things when I look at these cyclical industries. But what you see within these compounding growth industries within tech um, and kind of broader growth is that you can have nice things, and that these that these areas you know do have incredible growth potential. So, you know, it's always broadening out the the lens to 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 get that broader perspective.
1: So this is a great segue into perhaps how you view the world today. Let's talk a little bit about your economic out, uh, outlook, um where maybe you disagree with your peers and um and let's talk through through the lens of uh, you know many people in our audience are tech company founders. Um so what should they pay attention to as they are thinking about building their businesses in the current environment?
0: Yeah, if we think about the the path that we've had this year as far as the macroeconomic outlook It went from the year starting where consensus expected very no growth, effectively below a half percent of GDP growth, which is well below trend, and the potential of teetering on a recession. There was a recession probability of about 65 percent that was baked into current forecasts when we look back at the beginning of the year. Now, of course, growth has continued to come in much better than expected, and that recession probability has continued to fall given the resilient growth to start the year. But if we think about then what it's meant for companies is that a lot of companies were expecting a recession this year you could hear it in their commentary you could track the language within uh, earnings calls where or companies would talk about how that there were potential recession risks you saw a lot of com- tech companies in specific. Cut a lot of jobs, and really, you know, we, we can call it trimming the fat or re, recalibrating the amount of capital, human capital that they needed um, in the event that we had a recession. But now, what we're starting to see is that growth is really starting to tick back up, and that you're not seeing the true nature of a, of a sharp slowdown. So companies are now entering this period of better growth with with a lighter cost structure, which is actually fantastic when we think about the potential for margins and returns. Now, Just because we're not having a recession in 23 does not mean that we will never have a recession. Uh, We do know that Fed tightening cycles typically end in some kind of recession and something happens where it gets the Fed's attention to cut interest rates. It's either some kind of mild financial issue like in 1994 and 95 with the failure of Orange County, the bankruptcy there, which got the Fed to cut interest rates, Or it's something like LTCM in 1998, long-term capital management, which was a hedge fund that blew up that got the Fed to cut interest rates. But other times it's all been bigger recession issues that have actually gotten the Fed to ease policy. So what that means is that we probably eventually have a recession. Our camp is that it's going to take a lot longer this time around. We think it's a lot of things from the overhang of quantitative easing, many companies being able to term out their debt, borrow at very cheap rates for the very long-term companies and consumers have been able to do that, consumers through the mortgage channel, all that means is that the U.S. economy is actually much more resilient to higher interest rates than it was in the past. So what I'd say to companies as they look at at the future going forward is that we don't expect interest rates to fall anytime soon and soon being sometime in the next six months. We don't expect them to crater because cratering interest rates likely means that we're having some kind of deeper economic weakness, which means that as long as you have continued growth within the economy, interest rates likely stay high. So preparing and gearing the company and and the amount of borrowings for a higher interest rate world that sticks around for longer seems prudent uh, in this environment you Sh- at the same time is that we'll have to very much watch things like labor market, other leading indicators, real data, not necessarily soft data for signs that maybe the U.S. economy is actually slowing down. A recession is still a possibility for 2024, um, but likely it moves later and later as we continue to stay more resilient. So what that means is that we, we, we've been calling it the potential for the boy who cried wolf, this idea that everybody's been crying, the boy cried wolf, everybody prepared for a recession that didn't come. And what happens in the there's one element about recessions that's so very important it's the element of surprise. Recessions happen when people have too much stuff, when people have overproduced, they've overhired. And recessions don't happen when everybody was anticipating it. And so they calibrated and they weren't caught flat footed. So I think the the challenge will be as we go into 24 is everybody breathes a collective sigh of relief that do people then ramp up too much for this great growth that's going to happen and then get caught flat footed when the collective kind of weight of things like much higher interest rates from the Fed, the consumer finally starting to slow down, those kinds of things then starting to hit in 24, just at the moment when people have bought too much, hired too much. So I think discipline is still required, but in the near term, no recession, which means get used to the higher interest rates if you're borrowing money.
1: Yeah. And I just saw someone use this term vibe session that a lot of expected a lot of bad news. But if you look at the numbers, actually things are going well. But basically your advice is, you know, don't don't take it for granted, right? Like this, this has been very well controlled and and the economy is in a pretty strong position. But that is not to say that there couldn't be some downside surprises down the road. But at the same time, things are much better today than perhaps perceived on um Twitter. And um <laughs> So, you know, but but at the same time, interest rates are obviously a lot higher today, and so that increases cost of capital in general. And if we think about venture and if we think about growth investments, you know, we have a little bit more leeway, right, to work our way through higher cost of capital because the potential for some of the companies with fundamental technology shifts is so great that, um, you know, a lot of people still retain a lot of optimism on the asset class. But given your public market perspective and given what you see in the economy today, what would you advise private market investors to think about? And it can be as you know bottoms up as what you'd advise them to think about when they invest in companies to as macro as to, you know perhaps ca- capital flows into the asset class.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we did at the end of last year and at the beginning of the, this year is we built a, a venture feeder uh, where we did a venture investment that allowed for diversified exposure, kind of to one of your earlier points, this idea that you the tail distribution can be rather large and meaning that you, you have big winners and big losers. And so diversification ends up becoming important. And one of the, the dynamics that we identified that we wanted to focus on is staying early-stage within venture. And the reasoning for that is that we didn't know how long capital markets would be closed because of how high we thought interest rates would stay. And by capital markets being closed, I meant this ability for exits uh, from the Perspective of IPOs, which of course cratered were practically non existent over the course of 22, have come back some. It looks like we're getting some signs of life there. That's partially because if you look at the performance of, of recently ipo stocks, they're up a lot. They're up 40% this year, about double the SP, which does give people confidence that they can bring things to market since it seems like there's more appetite. A couple of successful IPOs is kind of like people calling the waters all clear. You can, you can wade in. But we didn't want to necessarily be sensitive to that IPO market and capital market dynamics Uh, uh, that can be hard to predict, mostly when you're trying to time it 8, 10 years out of when you need to make an exit. So by staying early stage, yes, the valuations hadn't fallen as much as you saw in late stage kind of like growth equity and pre-IPO companies but that there was still a great opportunity for that early stage venture to deliver the kind of returns that it has in prior cycles. At the same time, as we were still hearing this sucking sound of people stepping away from the asset class, which gave us confidence to step in. So we like being agnostic to the trends within, the, uh, within capital markets and trends within interest rates, instead of having to focus on parts of the venture space that kind of bleed into the higher end parts of private equity, where you are so interest rate sensitive, which means that there's a lot more financial engineering in the overall return, and Instead, we're saying, let's isolate the technology, let's isolate the innovation and invest in that instead of trying to get exposure to what has been a fantastic asset class over the last 10 years or so, which is financial engineering led later stage venture plus growth equity uh, investment. So that's why we've, we've moved towards that very early end of the spectrum.
1: And what are some of the things that you look at when you evaluate managers? And it could be across both public and private markets. Um, What are some of your heuristics to evaluate them and choose the ones that you think will be winners?
0: Yeah, I'm really fortunate to get to work with a fantastic colleague of mine who heads up our alternatives, uh, named Maxwell Snyder, and he talks a lot about and and really was key in in crafting this idea behind information advantages. And we didn't necessarily care about how you got to information advantages, but when we thought about investing in companies or sorry in in GPs and in funds. What we wanted to identify with was those funds that had built in a structural advantage in the kind of information that they had access to and the kind of insight that they had access to. So that could be from having the GPs being very involved with the founders because the GPs themselves were technology experts and had taken a lot of, of very innovative and disruptive technology all the way through the life cycle to market to examples of venture firms who had built uh, venture networks, people that could give them deep expertise. And again, it's this idea of avoiding just financial engineering, avoiding just the the play on on interest rates and passing kind of the potato from one firm to another. But instead of saying, do you have an identifiable information advantage in the area where you're focusing and making sure that we didn't have too much drift in that and where we weren't necessarily looking at funds that were trying to play outside of their ballywick. So we saw that a lot in the last last cycle. You also saw it from crossover investors, people getting into areas where they didn't necessarily have expertise. You speak to folks like in the biotech industry and in investing in what is purely, purely focused, very niche kinds of expertise. And what you had is a lot of folks in the last up cycle who really weren't biotech investors becoming involved. We wanted to avoid that and having that discipline to say, I know what my capability is. I know what my focus is, build an informational advantage that is actually structural. And that can then be the driving force of the value add that I have, because it's not enough just to benefit from this rising tide that lifts all boats since we weren't sure how long this period of financial liquidity tightening would persist?
1: Yep. Well, we certainly believe in the value of being at the intersection of a lot of high quality information flows. And um, and there's a lot A lot of different ways to think about that and build that type of expertise, but, um, you know, very much aligned there with you. So what are some of the sectors of the technology markets that you are watching most closely? And it could be, you know, both from the perspective of how it might impact your holdings across capital structure, but also for your business at New Edge, what are some of the, um, you know, relevant things that you as a firm are um, focused on?
0: Yeah, I think we can't have this discussion anywhere close to venture without mentioning AI. And, and of course, the it's interesting just how quickly the spark of AI really brought people back into the venture space where nobody wanted to talk about the asset class in the first few months of the year. All of a sudden, you see all of this optimism around artificial intelligence, and then people are clamoring to get on the early stage. So you know, I think that 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 will continue to be a source of interesting opportunity, and, and you know, the degree of its transformation in different areas you know, is, is still yet to be determined. But there's still lots of things in the fund that we have, uh, that the, the diversified fund that we that are very exciting on that front. And of course, AI could be certainly disruptive to the overall financial industry, mostly when we think about you know, how we analyze new information and, and what does that mean for folks who used to sit in a seat like mine, who would read earnings reports and, and, and type up earnings notes. Uh, is that the same kind of necessity for human involvement? This raises the uh, one of our other key thesis, which is that the next kind of decade with within venture is going to be much more deep in its technology. There were a lot of consumer companies that posed as technology companies, we think, in the last cycle that, of course, benefited from that rising tide and the, the proliferation of platform economics. And it proved to be extraordinarily lucrative for many, many players in this space. But you know, we've certainly exited the era where everybody's looking to have the Uber of the next enter now and here, uh, where it's much more where we think that having deep technology expertise in things like AI and cybersecurity um, uh, become even more imperative because the low-hanging fruit of just platform economics from a consumer standpoint, not to say that consumer investing cannot be still very exciting and a lot of things to do in that space. But we think where, where the, true, the big returns are going to happen is in that deeper technology, which requires a very different skill set. Uh, and it's one of the things that we pressed all of the firms that we work with to make sure we had confidence in that skill set to go into something that was deeper technology versus consumer.
1: Yeah, so let's switch gears a little bit um, to a different topic. You very often speak on CNBC, Bloomberg, lots of other media outlets, and one of your superpowers is the ability to explain complex financial concepts in a way that is easy to understand to anyone. Um, so, what are your secrets to being a good public speaker? And um, you know, how do you prepare to to present um, uh, on on TV and some of these interviews um, and anything? Else that uh, you'd recommend for everyone who wants to get better at it?
0: Yeah, I think that it's it's pretty trite to say, but practice makes perfect. I practice. A lot. And mostly when I was first getting into the media side of things, I just kept practicing what I wanted to say. Now, of course, you never know what they're going to ask you. That's one of the, the unknown secrets. Is everybody thinks you get the questions in advance? You certainly do not. Um, there are always surprises. I got asked about Microsoft's M&A policy one morning at 6:30 in the morning. I'm not an expert in Microsoft's MA policy, but you come up with an answer, but there's other places where I do have expertise and that's where, you know, you continuously practice. I, I practice out loud. I practice in the mirror. I get myself where I feel comfortable and you kind of shake the cobwebs off. And oftentimes I feel like it looks like the intro sequence for Anchorman where he's doing his, his vocal exercises, unique New York. Uh, and, but it still is very important because just like in everything that you see that, appears effortless on the surface, there's a great deal of effort that is happening in the background. And it's all the preparation you do in advance I write detailed notes about what's going on in the world. Um, I'm constantly reading, constantly consuming, so that way I don't get caught flat-footed. It's one of my biggest nightmares. You know, I I get I have two kind of recurring nightmares or three ones. The first one is that I go onto a, a dancing stage and I don't know the choreography. The second one is that I show up to the CFA exam and I haven't studied. And the third one is that I show up to a TV hit and I'm not prepared. And so I will do anything to avoid those nightmares uh in real life and i think that that is you know the the preparation does get easier that's the great news i remember when i first started i was like this is really hard and it starts to get easier it starts to get more natural uh but it's such an honorable place to be in to have this this place to to stand and speak and get to speak to the world to me it's an absolute dream come true And so I treat it it, with a great deal of seriousness in the preparation to make sure that when I go up there, um, you know, I know what I want to say and also have that, that, that thought potential in the event that they throw surprises, which they always do.
1: Well, as a person who did show up to CFA exam without any preparation, I can tell you that one does get over that. Um, but <laughs> but I will save that story for a conversation over a glass of wine. Um, <laughs> and just you know to conclude our conversation let's maybe move to um a few lighter topics one of the interests that we share is passion for ballet you used to be a ballet dancer tell us something about it that you love so much which maybe you know some people who have not been to the ballet that much or have not danced um don't know about it what do you love about um ballet and dance in general
0: Well, I love the discipline of it. The practice of it is so very similar to what I'm doing today in that attention to detail, that that presentation of yourself, taking the time to take care of yourself so that you have something that you're proud of to share with the world. That's so much of what ballet is. But then from a woman's perspective, it's funny. I remember hearing somebody speak, talking about how ballet was terrible for young girls because she was talking about Giselle and how she was all bent over. And Giselle is a ballet that was a very early ballet that um, is actually all about women empowerment. It's one of the first pieces of art that put the woman as the heroine in the story. And it's such a powerful thing for women to control and be proud of their bodies and show this incredible amount of artistry. And there's so much history and beauty in it. And I think that it's it's such an honor to get to have that be as part of my past because you know, I joke that anything is easy when you're dancing compared to dancing 12 hours a day and having somebody throw a shoe at you. Um, you know, you learn a great deal of being able to control your emotions. You can't walk into the studio and have emotions all over the place. You have to be, you have to leave everything outside. You have to be cool, calm, and collected, and that in a professional environment is incredibly important. So. To me, it's this great foundation for all of the things that I do. To want to work hard and be proud of what I do. Present myself in ways that I can be proud. And and um, it's it's a beautiful art form. I encourage everybody to to go see the ballet. Um, you know what's the what's the old song? Everything is beautiful at the ballet. I uh, could not
1: agree more. And I do think what makes it so special is the fact that it just re- requires that absolute dedication and commitment for such a long period of time. But at the same time, it just has this vulnerability and beauty to it. And it's is absolutely magical. One of my favorite things is taking people to their first ballet performance. And um, I've done that a few times, a number of folks, and uh, you know, everyone reported back, this is one of the most favorite evenings that they've spent. Um, but I do think it's, it's truly, truly magical. Um, and so maybe, what is your favorite ballet? Um, my favorite ballet is actually Balanchine's Jewels. Oh, wow. Um, so it's a little bit, uh, you know, lesser known, but the ballet <laughs> I've seen most times is uh, the Swan Lake. Um, I grew up in Eastern Europe and our holiday tradition is seeing the Swan Lake every season. So I've seen it across, you know, many stages from New York to London to San Francisco, performed by lots of different companies. And, um, and it's always very, very special.
0: My best friend in the world is doing Diamonds and Balanchine Jewels this spring. So, I get to see it. Oh, incredible. I will definitely
1: make a trip to New York for that um or wherever it's taking place. Um and so maybe then the last question. So, tell us about something that doesn't have to do anything with your professional expertise areas or ballet that you know a lot about, which maybe people would find surprising.
0: <laughs> well, I love classic rock and I love music in general, but I love rock across genres. Um, I have right behind me a book about Britpop um, with with uh, Liam Gallagher uh, with his mean mugs sitting right behind me, which you can't see in the podcast, but I, I love music and part of it comes out of the dancing is this great appreciation for all of the, the backup music that we have, but everything from, you know, from pop music and rock, which I love, but also going to the, to the opera and, and uh, going to the Philharmonic. Um, It's such a big part of who I am. I write my notes every week uh, with some kind of music theme. Um, So this week was themed Hairspray uh, from You Can't Stop the Beat talking about strong uh, U.S. uh, growth. And so it's such a big part of my life. I live my life with music all around me. I go to so many shows um, and and it's, you know, it's a passion that, you know, is, is so much fun and, and bleeds its way into my work with all getting to benefit from all the creativity of, of other artists around me.
1: Well, what a great way to finish our interview. Um, thank you so much, Cameron, for sharing your insights on everything from private markets to technology to um, rock music. It's mm-hmm. been a real pleasure um, to speak with you. Thank
0: you, Olga. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global Podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.